Back to another installment. It's a, it's an exciting installment. Is it installment? It is definitely an exciting installment. I'm not high. Okay. I haven't been vibed at all today. I haven't had it actually not true. I drunk at lunch. I did drink at lunch. No Adderall though. No <coughs> weed. Oh. <laughs> somebody right somebody smoking. That, somebody, that is not a COVID cough. That was people. not a COVID cough. That is that's more smoky from Friday. Yeah. Um, and I'm Camille Foster, and this is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. And I do things at Freethink. And that was all out of order. And yeah. listen, we're 200 episodes in here, people. This is number 200. And I, and I have to tell you, yeah. that at times, you know, you just kind of lose the thread. But you know what I never lose? What's My that? mojo. And you know who never loses his mojo? Matt Welch, editor at Large Reason Magazine. Not it's because he doesn't but... have much mojo to yeah. begin with, which actually makes it very easy not yeah. to lose the dribble. When Low you got key, the thing if you're not, if you yeah. don't yeah. really know how to do anything and don't have a lot Still of energy, wearing that bandana. It is the exact Dude, same bandana. Fucking, you can't He's do never the COVID excuse anymore. Yeah. You cannot look like Stephen Adler from Guns N' Roses forever. <laughs> it's like the barbers are open. Like nobody believes your lies anymore. Wait, Stephen Adler also wrote. He, did he wear a bandana too? I, think I thought that was an Axl Rose's thing. I think they all did. Well, yeah. That's Michael Moynihan, yeah, Vice News, fact-checking me, which is yeah. great. Um, <laughs> White splaining <laughs> Guns N' Roses to you? I mean, honestly, the only song that I know Guns N' Roses do, has done is Welcome to the Jungle and November Rain, which I really like November Rain. You know what the funniest thing Nothing I just realized? Forever, sweet November Rain. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to cut it's all very this. good. <laughs> you kidding? We're going to introduce our guest <laughs> who is on, on <laughs> that face. <laughs> really like that. With weed smoke coming out of his mouth, looking Need horrified. I just oh, want to point no. out one thing that when it's not talking about hip hop, Camille <laughs> mentions uh, one horrible band that we were coming for. <laughs> is that when he was younger, he liked Hootie and the Blowfish? Sure. And I realized that's that, not true. That, yeah, you said that. Yeah. I didn't like Hootie and the Blowfish. Uh-huh. They would play I it occasionally, love. and I just realized uh, I like he's black. <laughs> <laughs> I like Dave Matthews Band. Oh, that's, he's South African. He's African. Yeah, there you go. we're all African. All right, should we you know who's definitely African? The guy who's coughing on the fucking Skype. Our friend, <laughs> our friend, our honorary guest, Chong, for this podcast, <laughs> the special he's, he's anniversary, talking podcast. to us via Skype on his vacation. That's yeah. how important this is to him, Mister Andrew Sullivan. Look at goddamn yeah. legend. Goddamn God God legend. Thank you for joining us, sir. How the hell are you? You're, you're so welcome. Just the to be great. stoned. <laughs> I'm great. It's been a it's been an amazing couple of days. It's like there are tidal pools out here, uh, out near the uh, you know the end of the end of the world, really, uh-huh. uh, where the end of Cape Cod curls around in that little fishhook. And caught in the middle of that are these amazing tidal pools, which at this time of year, if the tide is right and the weather is hot. You just go there at like one in the afternoon and you sit in them and you feel the tide moving in all around your body. And you could even feel like, yeah, one day I was there thinking, no, I this does sound like I'm stoned. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you are. There, and I swear to God, reason for that. you could feel, shut up, you could feel <laughs> at point the tide turning in, in the water. You just feel you. And I'm like, the moon at this point is pulling this water past my balls as I'm <laughs> completely naked in the middle of this tidal pool. Uh, Wait, is this a nude beach? Is this fine? 
It's Provincetown. Yeah, it's kind of. It's, it's not a nude <laughs> town. <laughs> kind of. If you've ever been to Provincetown, there's a lot of nudity. Everyone's naked? Yeah, sure. Really? Sometimes. Sometimes. There's, there's, you go to Harry Cove Beach. They're the lesbians first. Uh-huh. And then there, are the, then there are the proper gays. And then, <laughs> then there are the sort of slightly, slightly not terribly kosher gays. And then it's, <laughs> then it's daddies and pervs. <laughs> Do they hand out maps? Do you know wow. what I mean? Uh, you know, like it's freedom. funny when Andrew uh, goes down this like stratification. <laughs> I realize why there's so many letters in the LGBT thing now. Yeah. It's like there's pervs and daddies and bears. And it's just too much. It's just start at A and end at Z. They just say it's the gay stuff with the A and the Z. I took Jesse Single there last summer. Oh, wow. oh yeah. Wow. To the daddy and perv section. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. appropriate. It's one of these moments where I bring the straight guy to the, the gay beach in Provincetown. <laughs> and uh, it was a total bunch of complete stereotypes. <laughs> Everybody was Big Gay Al or, you know, Mr. Garrett. <laughs> uh, it was every single variety of screaming homosexual in the nude with mustaches. <laughs> it was like, it was humiliating. Uh, and, yet, uh, and, I felt, and I realized I feel totally at home here. I've forgotten. It's only when you bring like Jesse Single and you realize, holy yeah. fuck, I'm living parody. Uh, <laughs> I'm just picturing like uh, Al Pacino's cruising, but with lots of sand, like, you know, <laughs> leather boys and mustaches and flat caps, leather flat caps. Uh, Andrew, in your, your, you've been there for 20 odd years now. Do, what do people think of you there? I mean, you get these little, I mean, we live in this world where, oh, it's an Andrew controversy. And then, oh, and this, the New York Magazine and stuff. When you're there, are, does anyone pay attention to this stuff? Are you uh, considered like the heterodox gay? I've been here for so long and I started out as a kind of kid here and a bunch of us started in my generation really coming here and some of us were smart enough when we were that young to buy uh, a little piece of property and some of us are still coming back. So, And that's before anything happened to me or I was particularly infamous or whatever. So it, the wonderful thing about this place is that I'm genuinely just me. I'm Andrew. And... I've been around these guys for you know my whole adult life. No one bothers me. Uh, everyone leaves me alone, uh, or we get together and we just have a great time. P Town is, you know, it's obviously an incredibly progressive place in so many ways, but it is not. It's still got this libertarian, uh, do the fuck what you want, mm. be who you want to be vibe that also has like this dark and long and glorious history of comedy. Yeah. and wit and outrageousness and so it it's super as i say super left in so many ways but i think it's it's you know it's this place where john waters feels at home it's a place where all sorts of various kinds of people feel perfectly at home and and i love it for that and, and everybody's kind it, of accepting i mean i saw john waters uh, fairly recently i think it was in a guardian piece or something uh, uh bemoaning uh political correctness and it's just a very John Waters thing. I mean, he's kind of the least PC guy in the world. And I think that I, I've told this on this podcast. I have said, I've told this story so many times, a very brief one, where I saw you at Hitch's place um, a couple of years ago at a dinner. Uh, we had a dinner there. And you said on the way out to me, you said, Michael, I used to be like the gay English Tory 
and now I'm just cis. And I thought that was the greatest thing because now it is like, you know, you used to expect people or there's an expectation that people from a sexual minority have the same viewpoints. And I find most frequently with gay men in particular that that's just does not hold at all anymore. And it just lines up like, I mean, we have listeners, we have friends um, and, you know, they say like, oh, I'm gay. it just doesn't even, you know, I don't think twice about it. Whereas, you know, if you're trans or something, if it, you're expected to gay men, it seems to be different these days. That there's an understanding that, okay, it's been normalized, virtually normal, and people can have different political views. And that's it. End of story. Yeah, I think that's what happens on the ground, to be honest with you. I, I don't, I haven't, you know, I'm a controversial person. I, I talk to, I have lots of conversations with people. Most people roll their eyes at something that I say or something. You know, no one's that energized by it. It's like, you know, it's, oh, well, it's her again, you know, you know, off again, <laughs> ignore her, that kind of shit. Uh, and We've got his pronoun, people. <laughs> I, I really and because gay men are not, no, I mean, the last time I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody actually say in real life, in conversation, LGBTQ. <laughs> no one does it. it doesn't exist in the spoken language. It might as well be Latinx, yeah, you know, yeah. point of, of gay people. And you'd also be surprised how many people here do come up to me quietly and say, you know, we're so sick of all this stuff. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. can we just get our world back? Can we yeah. just have, have fun again, talk honestly again? Um, and you know, I think there's a, and also because the politics of, of 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 social justice, critical social justice, whatever you want to call it, it's very hostile to white men, uh, especially cis white men, and the gay men in the LGBTQ plus or groups are now basically the oppressors. The, the, the argument is framed against white gay men as the enemy, and the goal is to expand. The coalition from the very uh, uh, marginalized groups within the LGBTQ plus community towards other marginalized groups, leaving gay white men up there in the uh, in the oppressor class, and that's that's subtext and pretty much text at this point. And there's a question whether at some point, although most gay men are you know passively liberal and lefty and will just write the checks, at some point, if the demonization of cis gay white men goes on. People are going to be like, I'm writing my check for what? I mean, I'm bankrolling these organizations and these groups to be vilified? I don't think so. And so I think there's an element of that going on. There's a bit of a, a breakup going on amongst mm. some of these groups. And a lot of it is also generational. Yeah. Uh, you know, there are, I, I had two encounters with two young woke ones this summer, and they're very different than gay people used to be. Um, they're incredibly intense. Uh, they, they, they're not really out for a laugh. Um, uh, and the two ones I got into, a, not an argument, just a, I just kept asking questions. So, so how would you solve this? How would you do that? What do you think you actually want to do with this Black Lives Matter and so on and so forth? And after a while, the questions were just too much and they, they really didn't have an answer. I, I wasn't being mean. I was genuinely trying to flush out. And at that point, it was interesting. Both of them immediately said, I can't be here anymore. I have to, I have to go. One was just sitting on the street. 
<laughs> were they homeless? Uh, <laughs> just sitting around the commercial street, we're allowed, even with our masks. So it's as if there comes a point in arguing with this particular generation that they simply can't handle it anymore emotionally. The tension of being with someone who may not agree with you on everything uh-huh. and may actually be penetrating a little bit your defenses. And you may be, because they've never really had genuine conversations with yeah. people who disagree with them. Yeah. Their, their muscles are atrophied. And so they start panicking. Um, and when, the, and not only that, they immediately think not, oh, this guy's full of shit or I, I don't agree with that or this. They, you, you get this feeling. They think, oh my God, I'm in the presence of evil. I uh-huh. have to leave. I'm being contaminated right now. This person is on the other side. And it's almost a panic reaction. Yeah. I've never come across this in my whole fucking life. I mean, <laughs> I've had conversations with people and arguments with people for like my whole life. That's what I do. And this is just a weird, first of all, incapacity to argue. And second, emotional inability to sustain engagement, difficult engagement. Yeah. It's, 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 it's as if awkwardness is they've never experienced that or lived with it or, 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 or difficulty in understanding someone else's worldview. It's just, they haven't been trained. Yeah. I've, I've had interactions somewhat like that from the, the opposite direction, I guess, because I'm not ostensibly not a member of the powerful class, uh, the leadership. Maybe I'm a, I'm a member of the patriarchy uh, in some respect, but being a black man, at least as I'm perceived, that's a, a much different experience. And there are two ways in which I've encountered it. One is with like younger wokesters in different contexts where I'll be in a room and dis- they'll discover that I have, quote, problematic ideas. I've heard yeah. myself described in that way when people did not realize I was in the room and listening to them discuss me or didn't realize that I was the guy that they were discussing from previous days interactions. Um, and they, they describe how the interaction was stressful for them, how they're so tired. They don't understand, you know, what, what should they do collectively when they find themselves interacting with a fellow black person that has problematic ideas and they're strategizing, they're deciding whether or not because of their exhaustion, they should simply not engage or whether they should try to educate him. Um, and then I, I, briefly just interrupted and say, hey, I'm the problematic asshole. Uh, let's have a conversation. Um, it didn't last long. It didn't go well. But the other weird inter- way this interaction has happened is over the course of the past two weeks, I've been working on my place in Prospect Heights again because I'm, I'm the Sisyphus of Brooklyn, um, but also because I'm probably selling the place. So if you've got several million dollars laying around and you want to overpay for a beautiful place in Prospect it's Heights, really nice. I mean, it is a gorgeous palatial estate. It is a, a compound with gun turrets and all kinds of other wonderful stuff. So however things go in Brooklyn, whether it goes way, way up or way, way down, you will be safe and sound. You want to buy this place, people. But I'm working on it <laughs> and I've got contractors there it's and selling you know, doing just a great job, just a really great job, yeah, quality yeah. craftsmanship, et cetera, yeah, yeah. et cetera. Uh-huh. And every time I will deal with someone, be it you know, not my realtor per se, but maybe, and dealing with sort of because her name is on the sign. So yeah, you know, yeah, if you yeah, figure yeah. it out, then you know it's her. Yeah. And I'm not saying that it's her. I'm just saying people like that. Right? Well, you didn't take Adderall today? I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I interact with people and I'll discover that initially Brooklynites will say things like, oh, you know, because 
you know, I, Black Lives Matter, I think it's so important what's happening right now. And oh, you know, you should meet Jeff. Jeff is a young Black entrepreneur. He's a self, you know, and we could support his Black business. And I, at some point in the interaction, I just said, hey, I'm not with all that bullshit. Like, I don't do it. I don't give a shit. I don't care if he's Black. If he's a nice guy and he does good work, I'm happy to do business with him. But none of that garbage works for me. And if you're interested, I can give you a little more context. And initially, there's always a bit of surprise. Eventually, it's like this dam breaks. And there's this, wow, yeah, that's always kind of bothered me too. Or, man, you know, I've got friends who like don't talk to me anymore. And it is fucking weird. It's strange. Like, I care about all of these issues. But for whatever reason, it just, I don't understand why it has to be this way. I thought it was supposed to be about the content of your character. It seems like something is wrong here. And I suspect that there are lots and lots of people who are, who are generally, quote, right-thinking progressives who care a great deal about all of these issues but feel deeply uncomfortable with the weirdness that is going on right Matt, now. Matt tweeted this, and Andrew is having his balls blissfully whirlpool <laughs> in the Atlantic Ocean, so I don't think he's... Uh, Heard this, but it was a Gallup. Was it a Gallup poll that said that found that three percent, three percent of uh, what do we what do we say? Hispanic, Latino, Latina people use Latinx. Three percent, and what was it? Seventy five percent had never heard it, yeah. something like that. And <laughs> I realized that I hear this multiple times a day, and I'm yeah. like, oh my god, I live with three percent of the population. Yeah, yep. I interact with the three percent. And, you know, when, you know, George W. Bush in 2000 says, I am going to make a run in, in for the Hispanic vote because their natural home is in the Republican Party, family, family values, et cetera. Uh, you know, Jeb Bush does the same thing. Everyone says, that's absolutely mad. And it's like, well, no, because you know the person who says Latinx and they are Latinx because their father is the ambassador from Andorra. And that's, that's like, you know, and they went to Harvard and they're like, you know, and they say their last name in this exaggerated way. I say, Hernandez. And then they just talk like an old person right afterwards. Uh, but that is, I mean, when I saw that, it was one of those things that, you know, blew me back for a second because I know this. I know I live amongst this, you know, rarefied, special type of people who think this way and I want to get away from them. But when I'm confronted with the fact that, Oh, in numbers, uh, 97% of the population that you are talking about either has no fucking idea what you're talking about or thinks what you're talking about is stupid. I wonder if, uh, Andrew, like we can put this in the form of a question because I, um, I'm, I'm interested in what you said about P-Town where I've never been, but like that it has this uh, undercurrent of like great kind of body humor. Um, there because it resonates with me uh, when I lived in California for a long time where I'm from. I went to Palm Springs all the time. Super big gay town and incredible like just bought the if you just think what is the anti political correct uh, sense of humor. That's what among like, you know, 60 year olds. Um, that's what uh, Palm Springs has always been to. And I wonder if that is like the window into it because your 26 year old 
wokesters who are terrified of talking to you for more than 25 minutes on commercial street, they ain't funny. <laughs> um, they're not interested in laughing, but humans are interested in laughing. Yes. I would presume that most people, no matter how progressive or how much they're funding these various things, they still want to laugh. They still want to bullshit. And like, it's not, you can't bullshit when you're, when you're policing people's language, it seems to me. No. And also, of course, gay men uh, have, would be crucified on any, any conceivable heterosexual standard of sexual harassment or, uh, <laughs> doesn't exist. I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, people, gay men will look at you and like, what? Yeah. What, what does that mean? <laughs> well, if you grab my ass, I go, what's wrong with that? It's affection. <laughs> We're just saying hello. <laughs> it's, really, it's really what happens when you take women out of a culture, a sexual culture, so that. All that unbelievable stress and tension in the heterosexual male-female power dynamic is just is disappeared, and all you have is male horniness. Huh. Uh, and I think part of that sexual subculture also helps flush out the piety to some extent. Mm. Uh, mm. And because everybody's making jokes about it, and everybody, you know, um, <laughs> I keep thinking of the chief. Drag queen here, who's everything's nothing's happening this summer. It's like a is that an great, official official position, <laughs> chief drag queen? Well, yeah, she he is uh, Ryan. Uh, he is he's been doing it for years. He runs a little Monday night show, a talent show called Showgirls, where he and various drag queens and anybody else who wants to put drag on and go up and do a number can 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 perform, and the audience it's it's a, hilarious. They all get drunk throughout it. They're doing coke behind the line. I mean, everything is <laughs> it's still happening. And, and one of Ryan's favorite songs, and this will tell you, this will give you a little contrast. There's a Women of Color weekend at one point in the season. There isn't this year because there are no seasons. There are no themes or anything. So Ryan always does the uh, opening number, which he, he, he does parodies of different songs with his own lyrics. And he does this great number that he belts out Black Dykes, which is his big crusading uh, dance number. And it's unbelievably politically correct. Going through every single conceivable name you could imagine Black Black might have. <laughs> and uh, huh. I just remember thinking, this is staggering. This, and no one in the room is batting an eyelid. Um, and it just feels inc an incredible relief to be, uh, be around it again. Well, I mean, stereo stereotypes of gay men were always that they were funny. I mean, growing up, I mean, it was what what gay men when you were young in the 70s and 80s did you interact with before it was something that wasn't just in cruising. I mean, it was Paul, Paul Lind. It was Charles Nelson Ch Riley. Yep. I mean, outrageous, fantastic, oh. over the top, funny people. And so the, the stereotype was, yes, sort of mincing in a feat but also quite hilarious too. And witty. And you know, who else uh, you can find, you know, a, a number of quotes, you know, pissing all over political correctness is RuPaul, um, who's had to walk some of that back too, because that is, I mean, when I think of Provincetown and I haven't been in, in probably, I don't know, 10 years or something, but every time I would go there, it was just a joyous, funny, fun kind of, that. and Commercial Street was just, you know, body and, and, and bananas. And, you know, drag shows and people drinking. And it was like the, the exact opposite of like a school board meeting in Park Slope, you know, <laughs> like grim women and, and men with their sort of hipster outfits on talking about how their kids are going to die of COVID or something.
Well, I want to. It's true. It's it's a totally. It's an old culture, and it, it. But it's always been part of it. I think one thing I I worry about is that the younger gay generation has never had to wrap its mind around uh, tragedy, mm. uh, and or the displacement and 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 uh, pain that so many generations of gay men and women who were especially gay men who were completely marginalized in their own time and used humor and irony to kind of buttress their own position in society. Um, and now we've made things a lot better for most uh, gay kids coming up. It doesn't feel anything like as stigmatized as it was when I was, that maybe we've, we've lost that desperate gallows humor that we used to have, um, which was partly about the pain. I mean, the single funniest zine i ever read was a, a, a zine called uh, diseased pariah news and it was but it was put out <laughs> dpn <laughs> you, were the, you were the youngest editor of dpn <laughs> yeah, point, weren't you? someone should revive yeah. that if that is not still in circulation it was so dark and so funny they had a centerfold every week one of the dudes would be like dying of AIDS and he would be out there nude. Wow. Like looking like a skeleton with KS lesions on him. Oh. And he'd be like Tony <laughs> T cells four. Oh, oh wow. Like, Are you kidding? Sarcoma, <laughs> cryptosporidium. Uh, and they would have a special dietary wow. section uh, for recipes. It was called Get Fat, Don't Die. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. There was a special <laughs> Get Fat, Don't Die breakfast you could order up. There was a, a section called Dead Boyfriend Society. Oh, which my is, God. That's... More, even, the, even the masthead had editors, parenthesis underneath, at time of press. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is incredible. At the very bottom, they had dead editors. Oh, no. Those had previously gone. And it was... It, you can find it in the New York Public Library. It was this zine at, in Berkeley, actually, that was unfucking believable how funny it was. Did they and, get a lot of shit for it at the time or not? Uh, those AIDS days were so febrile. I mean, it was like, like here, we would, the bunch of us that were coming here those summers, uh, every summer we left, every fall we left, we wondered who's going to be back next year. And we would lose maybe a tenth a year, uh, 20% the next year. Uh, and so every summer had this kind of living, dancing on the edge of this volcano. Uh, and those were the years when we just really didn't know. We had no treatments and we were just winging it. And one bad infection and you could go down the plug hole very, very quickly. So it was uh, that there was a, an edge to it all. That was that was incredibly electrifying, uh, and is very hard to convey now. Uh, and a lot of those people died. I mean, is it something that you know when you think of sort of ten percent of the people that you were hanging out with in Provincetown not coming back the next year, um, seeing friends disappear and, and waste away and wasting syndrome and all these things, and the fact that gay marriage was something that seemed so far in the distance. I mean, you wrote one of, if not the first book about uh, gay marriage. I remember Bruce Bauer wrote one too, uh, called A Place at the Table. And, you know, I remember when Barack Obama ran for president as an opponent 
of gay marriage that recently, right? Mm-hmm. And was, now we have, a, we have Joe a, Biden who, we uh, had, who gave us gay marriage. Yes, exactly. Uh, and you have, um, you know, Pete Buttigieg. I mean, I kind of had to remember, like, wait, he was gay, right? Like, it's, like, it's so <laughs> it's not even consequential. I'm like, oh, it's and true. I wonder if now the people that you run into on Commercial Street, uh, the young kind of woke gays, you guys of a different generation actually had to experience things that were real oppression. That were real, you know, this could end your life in, in, in a blink of the eye. And you didn't have the rights that other people had, and particularly when it came to marriage. I mean, it must seem so strange to people to tell you how unbelievably oppressed they are. When, well, don't you want to shake them by the lapels and say, no, you have it pretty, pretty good comparatively. When the human rights campaign sent me an email recently that said the gays and lesbians are now under unprecedented attack from the federal government. Oh, we God. have to... Wow. And I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> not, just not just in my adult lifetime. Yeah. But try being a gay in, in the 19th century. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it's, inconce- it's just unbelievable to me yeah. how angry these people are about so little. Mm. What, what is and that? seriously... Seriously, people are willing to accept, totally willing to accept transgender people. And no one's really in a going to hate transgender people. But if you force every fucking school kid to say there's no difference between a girl and a boy, of course you're going to get resistance and pushback. And you force people into these absurd philosophical positions. Why do you make me have to say, I, I, my maleness is entirely socially constructed, just so I can say I don't want you to be discriminated against? Mm-hmm. Why can't I just say, look, I understand. I think you should be protected. But you do, you, the tiny proportion of people who are transgender do not in themselves invalidate everybody else's cisgender identity, which is fundamentally created biologically. Uh, this is, this is, this is not hard, mm-hmm. but they're making it hard for me. <laughs> they make it hard for all of us who want to support it. But don't want to say ridiculous things like individuals with cervixes or or <laughs> or, or, or yeah, I when I saw that CNN tweet, I was like, "Is that?" I was trying to figure out what that was. was that actually like, a, that's a, a real tweet. tweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It said uh, people with, uh, huh. with cervixes or whatever. Huh. Um, and and to your question, Camille, and I'm sure Andrew has a much better answer. But I think that the on, on one small level. And which, this doesn't which question? Oh, the, what like, what is that? What, what, what is, is what is that where people I, discount? past yeah. struggles imagining that or, or contemporary their struggles are, there, yeah, are just people, as bad or the worst ever i think people want to be oppressed there's i mean there's power in that because the actual oppression though there is no power in it. it's the exact opposite well the, so yeah, i mean yeah, americans yeah. Okay. are incredible but i said that you know there's everyone's like oh i'm oppressed i'm oppressed and there's a new affinity group mm-hmm. and then i remember when i was in college my um who i I, I always describe him as the gay one-legged World War One specialist from Northern England, who was my <laughs> professor and my my uh, my advisor. And he said to me one time, he came over to me for some reason he had a posh accent, but he was he was from you know like Manchester or something. And they 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 there was taking over a building, and they had demanded because in Massachusetts an Irish studies program to tell people with the last names of Sullivan and Moynihan about uh, you know the Easter Rebellion and how horribly it had been oppressed mm. and. Um, I remember my professor coming over to me and he said, Michael, it's very good news. You're finally oppressed. <laughs> and, he away. and I remember from that point saying, 
Oh, the difference between Americans and somebody in like Uganda is like, we want to be oppressed. They don't. So, but because that's real oppression and fake oppression is like power. Okay. So that's, that's the, dis, that's the delineation because people who are genuinely oppressed, if, I, if I transport you back <laughs> to like the 1960s as a black person, yes. let's make you a black woman, Matt Welch. Um, you, Again. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> oh boy. It's just like quantum leap. That's what happens. Yeah. Oh boy. He's the trans <laughs> So we transport you back in time. You don't actually want that. You want to imagine and have other people imagine that that is what you're enduring while enjoying all of the privileges of living in 2020, which is to say, by comparison, is completely remarkable mm. um and there are many ways in which it's remarkable but because i would like to actually talk about a little bit of the news at least one aspect of the news um and that is a person who informs me that she is the first black woman to be elevated to the running mate for a nominee well almost nominee not quite yeah, yet yeah, nominee, no, but very yeah. soon to be nominee Next for Thursday, presidency yeah. of the United States. Yeah. Um, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris of yeah. California, senator from California, who is now likely to be the vice president. Um, and maybe she'll be the vice president. She could, in fact, end up being the president. If Joe Biden doesn't survive um, <laughs> yes, through <thank> you. <laughs> November um, or at least until January. Yeah. Um, so that that seems like a big deal and something worth talking about. I also, Andrew, would very much like to talk about, and I, I actually talked to Welch and Moynihan about this earlier, some of your perspective on the evolution that you've seen, because you've been covering politics and talking about it and writing about it for a very long time. You've been sort of at the forefront of a number of really radical um, paradigm shifts in media, both in terms of your experience blogging at your time at the New Republic, essentially seeing these publications sort of change in terms of their role, and now going from being at New York Mag, and perhaps you could share a little bit about that experience, and now you're at Substack, which is, is there's another potentially revolution afoot where someone like you can take your wealth of experience and knowledge and expertise and beautiful prose and venture out on your own and in an instant have a brand new publication that is, I, I think it's fair to say that it's well, well followed and well trafficked and well capitalized rather instantaneously, like a pop-up publication. This is pretty remarkable. It's one it thing really to is. have like blogs before, which again, you helped to pioneer. Yeah. This Substack thing seems like something different. So I'd love to talk to you about that as well. Maybe we start with Kamala or do we do we go to the sort of industry conversation? I what think maybe the think? industry thing, because you just you did a very good intro to it and it kind of bridges nicely what we're talking about. Okay. And I, you know, I'm also just interested in not specifics, obviously. I mean specifics when we're not recording, of how well it's doing. I mean, it was it was just a couple of weeks ago. And now you have this Substack empire. Yeah, you could tell us the number, and then we'll beep it out. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll go, oh, yeah, it's just like, like, oh. like those kids listening to uh, Phil Collins. We'll yeah. do that. Wow, that's Bentley money. Oh, that's that was a wasn't that a great YouTube? That was actually pretty great. They, they have their whole channel is terrific. It's fantastic. I know. Um, you know, I was thinking about some of this. I mean, I you all read Scoop, the uh, the original the uh, Even War novel. Feather-footed no. through the pleshy fens passes the questing vole. 
stops trying. <laughs> Are you kidding? To excite him. I mean, you can check it against the it's tide pool. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's it's a fantastic send up of old school English journalism, uh, and it's set in this August building, uh, the Beast. I think it was called. yeah, the Daily Beast. Yeah, yeah. and there and was a competitor was the Daily Brute. And yes. T- and by the way, Tina bought. Nobody noticed this. Tina bought both of those URLs. So if you typed in the Daily Brute, it went to the Daily Beast. That's oh, funny. Yes, I discovered that one day. I just tried it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my first day of journalism was to enter the building that that was modeled on as an intern at the Daily Telegraph uh, at still 20 years old, uh, writing on a carbon car. I sound like Abraham Simpson at this point, but <laughs> <laughs> electric typewriters, but with, with blue blue ribbon paper in between them. So you had three different copies. Uh, and I was an editorial writer, a leader writer, they called them. The general day began at 11, 11.30. People rolled up. <laughs> they checked their mail. Then it was lunch. And lunch went on till like three. And these people were so shit-faced by the time they got back to the office. Then at four o'clock, it was... Uh, <clears throat> it was... Um, tea time where one had tea and some were drinking scotch. And then we had the editorial <laughs> conference where we discussed what was going to be in the papers that day and what we were going to write, which was an amazing thing. And in fact, the editor at that point was called a man called William uh, Deeds, who was the model for William Boot in the original. Anyway, uh, hilarious. And you, you'd finish the meeting, have another drink. I'm not kidding you. Another drink after the meeting, and you would have to produce your copy by 7.30 p.m. Wow. And, and then it was, it was actually crafted onto t- ink, like actual uh, uh, steel, iron uh, printing presses down below, still, still basically run by the 18th century guild workers, whatever, <laughs> Print Street or something, that was still hanging on this before Murdoch destroyed it all. So that was my introduction to journalism which was and now it's just literally opening a laptop and reaching god knows how many people in milliseconds and it's we've gone not through cultural changes but these fantastic technological changes which have been really riveting um here's i i feel that with the substack thing uh i feel like the dish in 20 14, 2013, actually, when we went independent and launched uh, our own site with the, the first real pay meter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that was the, that was the breakthrough because that was true independence. That was uh, our own uh, audience that would come with us. Uh, mm-hmm. They paid and paid a lot to, to subscribe to us. And I didn't have to answer to anyone. And that was really a fantastic feeling. And I just um, want to point out to people the difference between then and now, uh, just a short six years. I worked with Andrew at the time. And when it was circulating in the building, in the IAC building that Andrew was leaving, I talked to Tina about it, Tina Brown, uh, the editor-in-chief of the Daily Beast and Newsweek at the time, and a number of other people. And there was panic because Andrew brought in the most traffic. And that was not even a controversial point. It wasn't even by you know, you know, 2% or 3%. It was by quite a bit. And now it's like, I will, uh, you know, I suppose ultimately talk about New York Magazine, but I'm watching this happening and I'm saying, motherfuckers, 
six years ago, we were trying to figure out how to keep the guy from leaving the building. And you're trying to run him the hell out of there. And, you know, so to, and to tell people what Substack is, basically, what the model basically well, um, Well, just the story is that I did that dish for 15 years as an independent. Well, took it from various papers and magazines who I leveraged deals with. Um, none of whom really wanted to continue it long term because they wanted to differentiate differentiate themselves from the dish and we were too big for them to be to be digested in a way um so then i took a year off and then i went back into writing and the reason is the dish was just too exhausting it was a daily multiple every 20 minutes we had a staff of about 10 i think maximum including interns so it was a huge operation and it just killed me there was no way to sustain it physically uh and mentally for more than 15 years and so wow. my big regret in closing it down was always, uh, I miss those guys. You know, we, you've been with people for 10, 15 years and readers get to know you and they, they get to understand that this is a, a, a particular space where certain rules apply and there's certain sensibility there and they come to trust it. And you develop this relationship with readers that is really valuable. I mean, it's one of the most satisfying things in journalism. I mean, I'm sure you guys feel the same way with your the listeners to this podcast or reason subscribers or uh uh and but i didn't know how to reconjure it so i went to i went to the best editor i knew adam and asked if i could go back to write some long form pieces which i did and then when trump got elected he persuaded me to write this weekly diary um and i have zero issues with with new york magazine at all in terms of the editors who were just fantastic people really helped me write and and it, it it just got impossible creatively and administratively to just write things that you knew people were going to receive in such a hostile fashion that after a while it genuinely saps your morale now by and people do you mean readers or fellow staff members of new york magazine both 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 uh i'm sure uh and uh, although the, the the column did really well in terms of its traffic, it didn't it didn't lose readership, but the sensibility shifted dramatically. And when I found myself writing what I would normally write about cultural issues, it became an enormous strain. I mean, I think that's all I can say. And it, and because I don't want to go into all of it, but but uh, in terms of the editors and in terms of the institution, I have no complaints at all because they helped me write some some do some wonderful pieces and, and explore some amazing topics. And they brought the best out of me. But talk but, about, talk a little bit about the, uh, the, the, the freedom, the independence, the thing that you can do now that you couldn't do with a dish six, seven years ago. It's remarkable. I think. Well, yeah, because suddenly I realized, well, you know, I had to make up my mind pretty quickly. I've been thinking about doing this upstack thing, but because this unfolded very quickly, I had to, I had an escape pod ready. To <laughs> Um, and so my friend, Chris Bodenner, who I did the dish with was also key in sort of encouraging me to do this. And so I just decided to jump in with the weekly dish. The idea of doing it weekly came to me like about a month and a half ago when I was high, uh, in the title. So <laughs> like, much happens in those titles. I got to get in those titles. Yeah. He's going to come up with the Corona vaccine in those titles. <laughs> <laughs> That's gently lapping against his balls. Like, oh, it's it's the RNA. Yes, <laughs> it's the T cells. 
God, my ball's floating in this whirlpool. You know, so <laughs> quite an image. Um, so anyway, so uh, set it up, uh, asked readers to uh, support it, and uh, we have brought in as much money for the weekly dish at this point than we had for the original dish at this point when we launched uh, a our independence. Mm. Um, so it's about 10,000 paid, paid up subscribers and 70,000 people in all. Wow. Who are, uh, onto this. And the pieces are getting about a quarter of a million reads every week. Wow. So it's, 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 uh, it means that my salary has just gone up considerably. Wow. That's uh, amazing. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So those, everyone, so those everyone chief skates yeah. were underpaying you, is what you're saying. <laughs> the market <laughs> design scumbags <laughs> were underpaying you. Well, they yeah, they were. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out I, I I don't I you know I don't know, but I, they yeah, it's it's considerably better. Yeah, I mean I'm massively better. I mean I'm I can't believe it that I it's it's I, we've done so well, uh, and there are only two of us working for it right now um so we're just trying to figure out we first we had a rush to make it a legal entity and we're you know doing all that shit we're all doing yeah. the admin stuff right now but my god it does feel and i remember the last two weeks that i've been writing i did feel freer i really did my brain just felt like fuck it i'm gonna write, write what i think so andrew I'm gonna go you, for it i, I want to talk about how that. many harassing how many Jews are going to be in the New York Times if they make it perfectly demographically representative of New York City? I'm going to, oh my you know, God. I'm going to yeah. say these things. And I know I won't be getting a cringe at the other end of the phone, as it were. It's weird to hear you say this because I assume the answer, and I don't want you to say this answer because I know you're not going to want to, that the answer is people that you work with uh, to do it in a backwards way like Jeopardy. And... Uh, but you're not somebody who's ever been afraid of pissing anyone off. So why do you feel freer now? I mean, you were pissing people off in the dish at Daily Beast, at the Atlantic, the New, you're, Republic. The New Republic. You're the king of pissing people off. <laughs> why is it different now? Here's what I think it was. Um, partly because the the vitriol has has gone up a notch. I think this is, you know, you are now a white supremacist if you have just a question mark about certain aspects of, of critical race theory. Uh, so that's one level of it. But, I, you know, I've been called a million fucking things in my life. It was less that than, to be honest with you, the, the relationship I had with my editors. Uh, I genuinely felt awful that they were going to be th- put through hell every week mm. oh. <laughs> uh, because of what I was writing. And I liked them a lot, and they were being put through hell. And this has been going on for a year, year and a half. Um, and I, I, I felt it was, um, again, I'm not saying anything bad about New York Magazine. I, 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 but, but, but yes, there were, the thing is also, I never went in the office. Mm-hmm. So I, when people I work with means nothing to me because I worked with next to my dog, basically. And I went in the office maybe four times in four years. So I didn't know any of these people and I never heard anything and no one was mean to me. So it was all this mysterious miasma out here mm. combined with social media that I think just made it very hard. Was it content uh, specific or is it just like 
Andrew Sullivan's that one guy who like did the bell curve a thousand years ago. Uh, <laughs> well, he didn't do. I did, yeah, curve. to be clear to listeners, Andrew <laughs> was not. It's that's Richard Hernstein. It was the other one. <laughs> no, but, like, but yeah. that's but that's how it is portrayed. I mean, seriously, that yes, is. I yeah. co-wrote and published it. <laughs> that's, that's like how it is portrayed. I mean, it's absurd. I there was a book coming out edited by Free Press that was incredibly interesting that we'd run by people we'd run essays from before. And so I ran a symposium on the fucking bell curve. Big fucking deal. Kind of what you do when you're in the ideas business. You write about important, prominent books. Biggest selling issue of the magazine is history. You know, that's what, if the New Republic isn't there to be at the center of a public controversy like that, then it should pack up and go home. As I'm concerned. And that's um, something to point out that I think people uh, forget about that it was a symposium mm-hmm. and it wasn't yeah, just, right. you know, 80 pages of ringing a book. endorsement. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. like, all of this is we, true. We, we sent everybody a copy of the book if they were a subscriber. But that I think is probably the most, I mean, I've known you a long time. I've been reading you for longer than I've known you, obviously. And that is the thing that I hear most often. So it would be actually nice to hear you respond to this because I get, you know, drips and drabs from Twitter. It seems to me that people say, Andrew, the problem we have with Andrew is about race. And that was not something that I had heard you criticize for in the past. You know, Israel, perhaps the Iraq war before you kind of turned against that and, you know, various other positions you took. Um, But now it seems online you say, well, Andrew's some sort of white supremacist. Why is that said? Is it as simple as that New Republic symposium? And what is your general response to people when they say that? Well, you know, how do you, you can't respond to that. It's, uh, you know, I mean, what are you supposed to say? It's an absurd thing. As far as I can see, I'm, but I'm not, I'm not. I was really I'm hoping not, you'd say yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting exclusive, like, it's, yes, now that I've left. It, yeah, <laughs> the freedom. It's me and David I'm, Irving writing for this magazine. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not down with critical race theory at all. And I'm a much more individualistic and anti-identity person and have been from my very beginnings. And I, and I have said nothing about any minority that I haven't said about gay people. And I haven't had any other standards for any other minority that I do for myself. Uh, I've been really tough on gay people, too, in my life. Uh, so I, you know, but I think things people decided that this person had to go for these reasons. Uh, I think that the... The question around race, if you are not prepared to say that there is that every racial or conceivable inequality is a function entirely of oppression, uh, then you are ipso facto a white supremacist. And I think a critical moment actually um, in all that was um, was when Kevin Williamson was uh, junked from the Atlantic and they mm. had that town hall meeting with Tanahasi Coates, uh, peace be upon him, and, and <laughs> uh, and Tanahasi issued a fatwa and said when they were talking about who couldn't they ever employ at the Atlantic, one of the things that he said was that because I had edited that issue of issue of the New Republic, uh, I could not be allowed to be admitted into i was i was one of the handful of people they could say they could never publish i didn't uh, realize that at the I, time I that's very that. interesting yeah and, or i forgot and then jeffrey goldberg said yes and he's an anti-semite as well 
This is from the entire staff of the Atlantic. And I know this simply because Ashley Feinberg published the whole fucking transcript. Yeah. Um, so I would, I would, I would presume you're friends or had been friends with Jeffrey Goldberg at some point in your life. No. Yes. I'd worked alongside him forever. Okay. He, he went crazy at me when I criticized Israel under Obama. Uh, and when I, when I just, when I called out what I thought was happening with, with, uh, Israel and the Obama attempt to get a two state solution. Uh, that's when he got really pissed at me. Um, but anyway, so that's the fatwa, I guess, originally. And when that's, when you're, when you're, when that's stated in front of the entire magazine that you once worked for and whose website you actually kickstarted and made what it became and had also encouraged and published and linked to Tanahasi from the very beginning and done more to get his work out there, name out there than anybody else, actually, who invited Jeffrey Baldwin to come to the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, who, I mean, who was, I, James obviously invited him to be, but I was part of that charm effort. Um, yeah. Uh, so well, Je- I, I mean, Jeffrey should know better because, I mean, Jeffrey um, is often accused by people who loathe him and are on kind of more on a further point, I, I wouldn't say to the left, but on more of the very pro-Palestinian side of accuse him of being a concentration camp guard. I've used, I've heard that phrase used because he was in the IDF and he worked at a, a prison uh, for, I think for a very brief period of time. And he wrote about it in a book and it's actually a, a quite, quite a nice little uh, bit that I've read of that. Um, Cause when that came up, I was like, what are people talking about? I went and read it and I said, oh, I, I don't understand what the kerfuffle is about, but I would expect that he would be sensitive to those things when people try to do the same thing to him and say, you can't write here. You're not, you're not kosher company. Kosher choose chosen uh, for a particular reason. But uh, yeah, so he, he backpedaled in public with an all hands on deck staff meeting, um, you know, uh, challenging why he would even deign to have someone like Kevin Williamson on there. That's really interesting. I think as, as an intellectual history, even, you know, above and beyond the fact that it has to do with you personally, but like that, that moment, cause this is, we've seen these moments, right? Like David Remnick was hauled on stage in front of the New Yorker crowd for like, why did you invite Steve Bannon to your stupid, like, you know, ideas conference? And he had to do some kind of ritual apologetics and the concessions that are made in those moments and the, in the intellectual kind of capitulations and, uh, are revealing, I think, uh, about the, where we live in. One of the concessions made in that meeting was sensitivity reads for every article published in the Atlantic that, really? that, uh, that pieces that were written that affected, you know, that, for example, I would not have been able to put out that issue of the, of the New Republic. Jesus, it's like it's 25 years ago. I mean, it's a very long time ago. But if I, if I had not passed it by black members of staff, right. you know, that's to be vetted. No, so no. That, that was a major concession. There were a few people, Kevin Williamson, Andrew Sullivan, you know, other people they didn't really name, but we were the most egregious uh, whom they would never publish. Weirdly enough, they both asked us to join the Atlantic only previously. But anyway. And, um, and Ta-Nehisi Coates had said, said very positive and nice things about Kevin Williamson, too. Yeah. He said he, was, he thought he was, uh, the, I think it was something like the one guy on the other side that I like reading is Kevin Williamson. Well, I, something to that effect. You know, just, I'm just not impressed by the incredibly crude new racial orthodoxies. I, I, I just find them utterly unpersuasive and, and not a little uh, demeaning to all of us. Uh, and that refusal to buy onto into, into this, 
just won't. I'm not, I can't pretend uh, that, uh, that this is the 1619 I really believe was the true founding of America. I can't pretend to believe that. I don't believe that. Do I believe that it's part of the United States' history? It's deeply bound up with the history? Absolutely. Undoubtedly. Like, Everyone oh. believes this. Everyone knows <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, it's not a straw man. <laughs> we we always honest. thought that, right? <laughs> but it's also so much else. That's, yeah. the, that's the thing about America. It is so much else. It, mm-hmm. Everything has something else to it. I mean, you could, I was talking about, you know, this place uh, 400 years ago. It was supposed to have the 1620 anniversary this year of the Mayflower Compact in the in the bay right in front of me. Mm. Um, and uh, so I, we could call it the 1620 Project. <laughs> you know, how America became a country of religious fanaticism and <laughs> essential government. I yes. Mean, so you can tell stories any which way you want. But it's I the would butterfly like to effect. Yeah. With some kind of balance. Do I mind them there not being that balance? Or, well, yes. I know I don't mind. If that's how it's presented. Like, let's take another look at this in this way. And there is interesting scholarship. And there's been a lot of more interesting history done. Uh, and I think we have completely uh, uh, understated how horrifying uh, the sort of the gulag regime in the South was for so long. I mean, it's, it, is, it is very – all of that I, I feel in my bones is true. But I can't throw this country out the way that they are or to simplify everything the way they do. Uh, there are historical debates about almost every issue. I mean, the anniversary of the atomic bomb just happened. We've actually had fairly interesting and constructive debates about that from when the Smithsonian had its exhibit in, I think, 1994. Uh, these things happen. They don't create big problems. And the idea that this is because it is about a new narrative of of uh history that is centered on the black experience in America is utter horseshit. In it, the thing that is different about this, why are you objecting to this so much? Now, granted, don't be surprised that, you know, idiots are in the Republican Party are introducing stupid legislation about it, which is embarrassing. But it is the way it is presented. It is not what they are presenting. What they are presenting is, from my perspective, and I've been digging pretty deep into this stuff, is pretty bad history. It's ideological history. Look, there's nothing strange or new about that. You know, Noam Chomsky exists. Howard Zinn exists. You know, Paul Johnson exists on the other side. This is something we can deal with. But when you go up to it and say, I don't know, I think that immediately making, before there is some adjudication by historians, immediately making this part of the curriculum at the local school is maybe a bad idea. And why are you doing it so quickly? Because it's an ideological thing. And when you object to it, they just, I mean, so much, they, so many people I've seen immediately take the swing that, well, why don't you like this history? I see what I, well, you didn't object to X, Y, or Z. It's like, no, 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 I do object to it, but it's a quiet objection because when you object to history, typically there's a debate about it and usually exchange some letters in some historical journal and, you know, it goes on the lecture circuit or whatever. This is Nicole Hannah-Jones sneering at people, you know, taking pictures of her grill and blocking them and saying all these insulting things. And then it just becomes this kind of us versus them battle. That's not history. It's just a, a political, a pitch political battle that has this patina of history, and we're pretending that those who oppose it are somehow denying history. Absolutely wrong. Uh, of the media market dynamics of all of this, 
um, which is actually a continuation of what Michael was just talking about on some level. Like it seems that Nicole, the, the Nicole Hannah Jones view of the world is gaining the upper hand at the New York Times right now. Um, uh, and so people G- gaining. I mean, I'm 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 a cautious yeah. fellow by sort. Um uh and uh and so the question is is that going to um be able to maintain their existing readership or grow their existing readership or do you intuit having gone through your own personal experience leaving New York and then surprising yourself to have a bigger salary going solo that audiences are being created or maybe are being revealed to have been left behind either by this or some combination of this and a bunch of other things in the media. Can you cogitate on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, I do think it's funny. Uh, the New York times has so much institutional heft and presence, you know, it's hard. It's, there's a, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of ruin in a big newspaper. So yeah, (laughs) it's, it's, uh, it's got it's it's still got a lot there. Um I find very recently, uh this year in particular, during the BLM stuff and subsequently that it really does it really has shown itself to be utterly activist in its in, in what it's doing. I mean, uh and activist in a in a in a in a seriously far left kind of way. Um one of the questions that was asked in that staff meeting that we got leaked was one of the staff is saying instead of treating race as a question shouldn't we be treating race in every story shouldn't this be in everything isn't this the fundamental meaning of america race and that's what we're reading i mean you look through the front page of it it is it is some, one critical race theory piece after another essentially it's how this is about racial this is this is this is great i mean to today i mean I, I don't think i've got i mean i went through i don't know how many pieces all about uh, all about whiteness, blackness. This person, I mean, from from the from the uh, Kamala Harris uh, stuff as well. And I just feel like this is screaming at me now. And I don't think it's that interesting. I mean, I do think I'm not saying we shouldn't cover lots of stories. I'm just saying this constant lecturing around a particular rubric of identity politics constantly with every story clearly written in order to change the world for the better uh i i think it becomes very hard to read uh and i think it, it, it it's all becoming the same i mean you look at the nation or the republic or any of the, the sort of liberal magazines they might as well all be the same magazine they have the same tropes and arguments the same and it's amazing how swiftly it's gotten that way um i I suspect that readers will eventually drift away. Mm. Um, uh, I, but I don't know. I mean, who knows? Maybe the world has completely changed, and I'm just, uh, I'm just out of it, and 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 don't realize that everything's no, about. No, right. you're not. Well, you're out of it, but you just <laughs> increased your salary by going solo. Well, so yeah, that so suggests it, something else, the right? Logic, the logic of that is that these guys are leaving money on the table. Yes. The logic of that. Yes. It's, they would rather they would rather be woke and broke than actually <laughs> unwoke and 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 getting somewhere. I mean, I I do think there's an expiration date on some of this. Yeah. Uh, I mean, slate and box. I mean, is there anything in there that isn't exactly couldn't be chopped up and put in each other's magazine? Um, and- it's amazing the difference between slate now, which I don't recognize at all, and I find 
you know, indistinguishable from you know, the new version of the nation, not even like, I mean, the Victor Navasky nation was interesting. Yeah. I hated it, but it was interesting. And I read it. Uh, this is indistinguishable. And I mean, I think back to when it was, you know, Jack Schaefer and, you know, Hitch had a column there. And I, I think what's his name? Your, your friend who's the psycho anti-immigration guy now in Southern California, Mickey Kaus. Mickey Kaus yeah. had his thing there. It was, there were a lot of like those types of, views there that were kind of all over the place. And I just like, cannot imagine people don't want that in their publication. It's it was great. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, he's amazing. Yeah. And yeah. he, you know, he, there were two rules he gave us when we were interns. Yeah. I'm doing the Abraham Simpson thing. Yeah. But the, uh, <laughs> and, and one was, uh, write that now because you won't have the balls to write it in 10 years time. Wow. That was one of his mottos a great motto to live by as a young journalist. And the other one was, uh, if you think you've gone too far, you probably haven't gone far enough. That was his other rubric. Now, just and uh, Wednesday afternoons, once a week, I would be holding to his office just for puns, just to come <laughs> up with funny lines. That's all because I was the English guy and I like puns. And I just sat there for like 45 minutes coming up with the headlines to everything in the in the in in it, there was a there was an element of madcap fun and just joyousness about some of it. It was what a joy of journalism. It was funny. It was it was it was it was surprising. It was it was unpredictable uh, in in so many ways. And also in the same magazine, as you remember, Michael, uh, uh, you know there was Mickey and then there was Bob Wright. They yes. now do that, two yeah. things together. Yeah. They started off as alternating for TRB when I was editor. Although we had Le Leon Weaseltier and Charles Krauthammer, for fuck's sake. God rest his soul, Andrew. Well, no, no, Leon's heart's still working. He's not doing cocaine anymore. No, but, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I definitely want to talk about Kamala, but one, one thing that I, I would like to get your perspective on, because I, I talk to a lot of tech bros, and they're all very high on Substack. And from their standpoint, you know, the the antidote to cancel culture, whatever the hell you want to call it, is, well, all of these old publications are going to die and every journalist and commentator is going to find a way to exist on Substack. But I'm also remembering something that I heard you say earlier in this conversation when you talked about making the move to New York uh, Mag and having these editors who are helping you write better. And you talked about the environment that you existed in at the daily dish and having these comrades in arms who were doing this hard and difficult work with you and there was sort of an iron sharpening iron uh process that was taking place there what do you think about the long-term viability of say substack as a platform and as a movement at least as it's currently constituted because the conversations that i've heard um, amongst the the tech bros and is one that seems to place a great deal of emphasis on the volume of content that's produced on finding more people to produce more newsletters, but more newsletters doesn't mean more weekly dish necessarily. Like the quality of these publications has to matter and whether or not someone is actually reading them and they're having some sort of cultural resonance has to matter. And it's not obvious to me that they generally understand what's required to produce a publication that is likely to have those kinds of, to make waves in the way that what you're doing and what 
uh, Matt Taibbi is doing um, at Substack. I imagine that most Substack publications simply don't have the kind of reach that yours does. What, any thoughts on that? Am I too pessimistic about this new movement? No, the trouble with the concept of a magazine, really, now, is that magazines were, it turns out they really were dependent on paper being connected with some staples together. That's, that's what put this group of people together. And a magazine is a group. Uh, on, online, as Madraj told me like 20, 20 years ago, every page is the same as every other page. Nothing is necessarily connected. Mm. Everything can be disaggregated. So the whole concept of magazine becomes really difficult to envision or re reimagine, which is why doing the blog or the Daily Dish was a kind of magazine-y thing, but using other people's work and magazines to do a sort of collage of editing to turn it into a sort of constantly churning kind of magazine-y thing. Uh, but obviously the next step would be uh, either to go back to – what, what it appears Leon Weaseltier is doing, which is all print, you know, doorstopper magazines uh, for the for the for the for the for the highbrow, really, or for whoever. Uh, well, he got canceled too. Remember, he was going to have a magazine funded by uh, Steve Jobs' wife, and old allegations about him being a bit creepy uh, came back, and they sacked him. So, all yeah. of which I believe. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> it's a matter of whether he should be sacked or not. I don't Just know. Based yeah. on his haircut, I've never met the guy. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So here's, here's the thing that intrigues me. So you have – look at um, the dispatch, David French's thing. So mm. I think Jonah Goldberg writes a page for it once a week. Mm. That he comp He's combined. You can get – you can get – you could add uh, – if, if each writer substacks once a week – you got seven writers could be on the same Substack, uh, and the person would get a different email from each in, a newsletter every day from a different writer. You could just you could build an institution that way. Mm -hmm. in, in the same way that when I first went to Atlantic, the model I proposed to them, which they started and then dropped, uh, was to find a magazine could only do two things. I thought one, it could put out serious long form print journalism which is still necessary and vital and important. Uh, best read not on a screen, either on a Kindle or in, in, on paper or in books, and then create a sort of salon of writers who would interact with each other, mm. but also be themselves. So we had what we called Voices, which was yep. a, about six or seven bloggers who were interacting with one another, but also doing their own thing at the Atlantic. And that way you also get synergy because people link to each other, which is how Tanahasi got a, you know, he, he earned his own audience person by person, but I could help get his, his pros out to other eyeballs. And so we had Tanahasi, we had me, we had Ross Douthat, uh, and we had uh, Jeffrey Goldberg and Megan McArdle. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a pretty fun bunch of people. Uh, and only only two of whom stabbed you in the throat. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> yes, that could be that. fun sometimes yeah, you know. under the right circumstances. Brits, <laughs> they like that stuff. It, it just happens, man. I mean, you know, <laughs> lived a long time. I've had a lot of knives in my throat over the years. <laughs> um, so what I'm hearing, let it just go on. You know, the point is doing the work and having fun with it. Do the work. Um, and uh, this new event. So I am thinking of 
maybe, I don't know, this is all to be figured out as we go along. It just started, you know, bringing, maybe hiring some other people mm. to create something bigger than simply a, a lone weekly, weekly dish. I mean, we have our window view contest, which is way more popular than my pros, but it, <laughs> it's, uh, it, well, it, it, it does, people love it for some reason. Um, no, I can understand why they love it. It's just, they're really passionate about that shit. <laughs> so um, what I'm hearing is that when, uh, when the, the new, shout out to my ahead. buddy, Bodena, who, without whom I wouldn't be doing any of this. He's, he's just been the best friend, uh, I could ever hope for. And he's helped me get this off the ground, get me sane. Mm-hmm. Amen. So is there a, is there a, a future possible to imagine where some of the silos can combine? You create a new liberal media institution, and I mean classical liberal media institution, that builds protection. Uh, protection is a force projector and amplifier, but also allows people to protect their own stuff that they do themselves. It's not going to cannibalize, but just says, hey, look. You know, if you want to combine, if we want to have first, you know, reproduction, re- republishing rights that are here, you think that's an interesting idea? I do. I think it's, I think that having broken the magazine down is how you could maybe rebuild it again. Yeah. Uh, how the thing has been disaggregated and could be reaggregated into some, it's not ever going to be quite what it was. Right. But at the same time, you could also imagine just the sort of, and these are just thoughts, um, but say you bring in other writers who have their own followings, uh, and you mm-hmm, pool. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to persuade them. There's you tide pool. In- <laughs> yeah, what? you tide pool. Yeah, <laughs> get Jesse single, Katie Herzog yeah. tide pool. That's what I was really it. nice at first, actually. Then I saw Andrew's balls all the time. Actually, it was really nice. <laughs> Look at them. <laughs> that's the, that should be the them. name of the a section. Look at them. Uh, it's like a weekend section. Look at them. <laughs> uh, but a final thing on this I'll say is that what you said before about the dish and the thing that you missed is exactly, I think, what we've built here on this podcast, which is so different from magazines, is that, you know, you would have a nation cruise, which always struck me as like the weirdest thing is like, I want to be, you know, in Bermuda with Katrina. Um, and, and, you know, and Victor Navasky. Yeah. Um, but that was the closest thing you'd get, those sorts of things, the cruises, and those were money-making things. But, you know, we have such an, uh, an interesting audience. We have a big audience and they interact with us and we have the Patreon and we produce more content for them there and we interact with them there and we talk to them, et cetera. And there was nothing like that in the past with magazines. I mean, there was like a letters section basically and, and that was it. And so I think that when everything's so diffuse now, and the thing I worry about with things like Substack is I heard that like First Look Media, that uh, where uh, Greenwald and those guys are, uh-huh. that they were doing- Well funded, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, Pierre or whatever, yeah. that, that they're doing a kind of uh, TV type thing, an Apple, like an Apple Plus type thing hmm. where they have a bunch of shows. And there was a point, and a friend of mine was doing a show for them, that I thought, how many of these can I buy? It's like having seven remotes. Sure. I don't know. Is that for the DVD player and this one's for this one? It's like I'm paying for 10 for this and five for this. And the, there is a point at which you want it all to be under one roof, not only to save yourself money, just to save yourself the hassle. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So many emails it. and so many. But the community is the thing for us that has been. And, and also we have listeners that do remind me of people that, you know, like me and, and you and, and, and all of us. 
that we like hearing different ideas. I mean, Matt Taibbi coming, going on to Substack, Matt Taibbi and I probably disagree on about 78% of the things, that, but I love, I love his voice. And it's not, I mean, maybe it was the woke stuff, the anti-woke stuff that brought me to him, but I read all his other stuff and I'm like, yeah, I disagree with this, but he's a fun writer yeah, yeah and he's, he's an interesting guy. And I just don't understand that we live in this world in which, you know, Andrew files copy in the the pearls are clutched and the fainting couches are rolled out into the newsroom. It's like, it's a, they're, it's a words. It, it's, <laughs> a, it's what it is. Words. What are you afraid? This is going to words are violence now. Yeah. But I just watched a documentary the other night about the Rwandan genocide. There were no words. <laughs> there were machetes. That was it. Yeah, sometimes, different. They, sometimes they talked while they, they talked while they were doing yes. them cockroaches sometimes. and things. Yeah. But you know, also, it, also bad. Yeah. Right, yeah. Bad yeah. for sure. But yeah. fucking relax. Yeah. And allow, I mean, the, if I could teach young journalists one thing, be nothing about writing, really, you figure all that stuff out on your own. It, it's just read people that you hate and try to find things about their writing and about their argumentation, about what they're covering that you enjoy. Yeah. And do it from your perspective or something, but appreciate those things. I mean, I remember when I realized, when I, I, I sent them to Katrina, Stephen F. Cohen, her husband, uh, is was like a Soviet apologist and is now a Putin apologist. And I interviewed him for the HBO show not too long ago. It was a good, interesting interview. But you know who, uh, like they used to dedicate their books back and forth was Robert Conquest. Big fan of Stephen really? Cohen. They loved each other. Wow. And he was like, yeah, no, the guy is wrong about everything. Um, he, he's, uh, he, I think he was right. He thought he was right about Trotsky or something. They had one sort of, or, or who killed Kirov. It was some sort of <laughs> narrow point, but they enjoyed each other and they helped each other and read each other's manuscripts. And there are two different people coming to radically different conclusions. And now, I mean, that's like, oh my God, you, you read that person? How, why is that book on your shelf? You should, you don't carry it in your bookstore. Don't have it on your shelf. Don't, I mean, there was a thing of somebody was being canceled the other day by, uh, who is this journalist that seems to tweet at, uh, Kathy Griffin and actually not do any journalism? Huffington Post guy. He's like a bazillion. Gonna have to, gonna have to narrow that down. Yeah. Um, he's a gay chap. Uh, I know who you're talking about. I can't remember yeah. his name. What's that guy's name? Andrew, do you know that you guys all know each other? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, he has the, 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 the I'll cut this out. He has the big thing, the anorak on his photo. But he was attacking some guy, uh, some, uh, you know, some guy for taking a picture from the eagle's nest in Obersalzburg, where, where the allies, you know, took over Hitler's way. And he was like, this is horrible evil and the rest of it. And he was like, I cannot believe he went there. This is disgusting. And he's running for Congress. It's like, no, I mean, he just, it was, he's on holiday stop by. It's pretty, pretty. And he was like, this is a really, you know, tough place to be, et cetera. And it was like, you can't even go there. You can't read that. You can't, what are you doing even interacting with that? That attitude seems to pervade culture and is now affecting everything. It's like, you can't even go on vacation if you're interacting with like an ideology that you hate and you say that you hate it, but it was there. Yeah. And you're not sufficiently denouncing it. It's like, uh, for, you know what? Fuck off. Honestly, everybody can fuck off. And then Andrew and the rest of us can start our own things. I was, Type I was brought up, I mean, me, it's just incomprehensible. I was brought up first in a sprawling and argumentative Irish Catholic family. So living with conflict was, yeah. you know, living with conflict and not being able to see the outside of the room for the cigarette smoke was my, was my upbringing. And, uh, and the best, and this is, I'm now, this is sort of name dropping. It's also very weird that it's true that at my grammar school, at my high school, there was one dude who used to get on the bus to go to school. 
the public bus, uh, got on a few stops after me, and we would fight every day on that bus. He was a he was a what he called a Euro communist, and I was a young Thatcherite in the seventies. And we would we fought every single fucking day. It was we fought in the in the classrooms. We fought on the beaches. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew will never surrender. <laughs> we never surrender. So was sort of famous. Anyway, that guy is now leader of the opposition. Yeah. In in, in Britain, he's the leader of the Labour Party here. Stormer, because oh, wow. uh, we were seated in class. Stormer Sullivan. So I was literally behind him the whole time. Yeah. Uh, and he was also a rigid atheist, anti-cat. I mean, everything and. We kept in touch all this time, and I have no. I mean, it wouldn't. I wouldn't dream of not being friends with Gear because I disagree with almost everything he believes in. It just it, that's the point. Mm-hmm. Don't you get that? It's like mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. get that being friends with people like that is what makes life worth fucking living. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's. Well, these are people that don't seem to me like they're having a lot of fun living life. To be honest, no. So. That's the other thing: the joyless. The yeah. joyousness is insane. That they could make gay life boring is like, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny because that's what they used to accuse you of doing. Like you wanted to, nor- you wanted to like make boring marriages. Like yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna yeah. hurt the culture. I just wanted gay. No, I just wanted gay people to have the same opportunities as anybody else and not be fucked up in their youth by the impression that they weren't worthy of any of that. Mm. And uh, that's all. I mean, that's all I, I I didn't push for anything else much than the same civil institutions, uh, same access to the military. Um, and that's basically it. And then let's, let's get on with our lives. And there's plenty of, plenty of very conventional gay men who want to live really conventional lives. And that's fucking wonderful. And there are others who are uh, not like that. And that's wonderful too. But, <laughs> The idea that everyone was forced to be an outsider by default rather than by choice, that's that's the issue. Well, um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about the the new VP nominee. Well, not quite nominee. You've made that mistake twice, but it's just whatever. Whatever. Kamala. Kamala Harris and Andrew, I know you've been on vacation, but I suspect that you have some perspectives <laughs> on this. I'm you heard very interested. <laughs> In how you took the news, I know that you are not supporting Donald Trump. That you are very publicly not supporting him. Does Kamala Harris make Joe Biden a more attractive candidate from your perspective? Do you think this was the right pick? Are you excited about this? Do you find her to be authentic and endearing? And <laughs> just generally well, sort of consistent in principles. <laughs> what do you What do you make of her? I'm what fine. do you have against strong black don't, women? I don't want to know much. <laughs> We've got to get rid of this asshole somehow. Uh, There's nothing else to talk about. Yeah. I just, you know, okay, sure, good, great. I didn't. I mean, I have to say, in the primaries, I thought she was awful. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I thought you, it you, it you and most of America apparently. Yeah was just excruciatingly awful. Yeah. Uh, when she when she declared that she would just by executive action, I can't remember what it was. Guns. Said, 
Yes, he on Dave. They oh my god, I forgot about that. And Joe Biden chimed in from his slumber and was like, "You know, we have a constitution." Yeah, <laughs> I mean, he actually did say yeah. that. And I was yeah. like, "Wow, Joe he Biden waking up." Yeah. yeah, but but didn't he, Joe Biden also <laughs> later told uh, what's his name that he was going to put him in charge of the gun stuff or oh, Beto? Beto that he yeah, just put him in sure. charge of the guns. Yeah, yeah, I think Beto's in charge of the dog food. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then she responded, "Well, oh, Joe, don't be so, don't be so, whatever." I mean, yeah. it, was a, it was a completely idiotic response. <laughs> and so my feeling was, this person doesn't know what the job of a president is. Has made an absolutely fundamental error in a no. You don't get to be president. Yeah, I mean, um, she might be paying attention to the current president, who believes that the job of a president is just to sign an executive order to right. cover anything that he likes. And yes. anything he can't get Congress to legislate in the supreme power of Congress is not something that he's even ever comprehended. And tweet yeah. out as he did today. And we're recording this on, what is it? Wednesday? Wednesday. Wednesday. Yes. Um, like, hey, hey South Dakota. Gave you gave you some money today, isn't that great? <laughs> like he went down. He did like twelve states. Yeah. Like I got you fifteen it's million dollars. Come on, naked. I did. It, it. Come on, naked like graph. Like I'm paying you off. Do you like me now? Can you vote for me? I'll give you some more money. What else do you need? Are you a suburban housewife? Because oh I'm gonna keep the pores away. By the way, we have all these conversations. <laughs> These idiotic, pointless, uh, circular conversations about capitalizing black and do we capitalize white? And it's like the, the president capitalizes, he capitalizes suburban housewife. Do you know what I'm saying? It's in quotations and is capitalized. And I'm like, maybe he saw the New York Times decision. He yeah. was like, I think this is also a group of people that need capitalization. The Trump style guide. The Trump That's a job. Random, that is a fucking job. Random capitalization. Well, I mean, I think that the, the only thing you can say, and I'm kind of like Andrew in this, is that. These are people who have no principle. Don't ever trust anybody that wants to become president or vice president. I mean, she's I think all she's these, special, though. Well, she's special. Kamala is special in that regard. She is special in the se- in, in the fact that like most most of these people don't believe anything. I mean, look at Donald Trump. I mean, when he was vying for the Reform Party ticket, he spent all, this whole time uh, accusing Pat Buchanan of Nazism and saying he 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 defended John Demjanjuk. <laughs> I think somebody was feeding him this stuff because I don't think he it's was a, it's big, a hard pronunciation. Yeah. And Ivan, the terrible uh, researcher, like on his own. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the man has gone from every position with the exception of trade is the only thing he's he's kind of stayed. stayed. But, but with with her, you see these policy shifts from Kamala's a cop to Kamala's a social justice warrior and activist mm-hmm. and to making race sort of central to most of the things she talks about. But when you are the candidate. This is how corrupt and horrible politics and particularly American politics are. You are the candidate and you have chosen a person who literally said that you are a racist and a rapist. It's crazy. Both things. Do you believe the woman who's accused Joe Biden? I believe her. She, he definitely did it. He definitely did it. Do you? Uh, yeah, 100%. He did it. I believe uh, Kavanaugh's accused. I believe him. Uh, and I also think he's a racist. And Joe Biden's like, I really want you to come to the problem. <laughs> like, what the fuck? Like, why are any of these people being taken seriously? I'm with Andrew. Get him, get Trump out of there. Replace him with like a, like a dog wearing human clothes. I yeah. don't care at this point. It's just not him. And like, these people are fucking clowns. I, do, I think it's very important to shine a bright light on the deep corruption of all of these people. Yes. I, I think it is very important so that we don't get into the habit of, and I've seen it. I have seen it all over Twitter. In fact, 
I've seen it in a lot of publications as well. There are there's a range of responses to all of this. There's the the, the incredible press release that I saw come out of the Trump reelection um, campaign. Um, I, I guess they borrowed a phrase that one of Trump Trump surrogates that used on one of the Sunday shows where they referred to his VP pick as his living will. Um, which now it is Kamala that's, is his living will. Did she use that? Yeah, that's a pretty good. Yeah. In 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 oh yeah wow. in the camp it's Katrina you, Pearson. You're not actually authored surprised. this. Oh wow, no, but it's kind of remarkable. It, it really is. It's it's kind of like there is no bottom there. Yeah, there's no. Bottom um, there. Yeah, but, but, you don't talk about how the guy's gonna die. <laughs> we do. They don't. That's our job. Trump. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, yeah. But but with Kamala. You know, there's there's the drug policy, the, her being against um, legalizing marijuana, and then it's wonderful that she's involved on these issues. But mm-hmm. there's there's no acknowledgement of the fact yes. that her position on this has changed. No, it's she just this seamless it. transition and this flagrant dishonesty about it. And one of the episodes which we were talking about before we started recording, Matt, was this this nonsense with Backpage. Um, and I suspect most listeners are familiar with Backpage. Backpage was um, an online publication. I don't know if there was ever a physical It was spun out of the New Times uh, publishing empire of alt-weeklies, which eventually had bought the Village Voice chain. It was a competing okay. chain, originally started in Phoenix, Arizona, the Phoenix New Times. They understood that the back, uh, the back uh, classifieds of alt weeklies back in the day, and this was true of almost all of them outside of Salt Lake City, um, was just filled with sex ads mm-hmm. and yeah. and uh, and just like you know Boston Phoenix yeah. weird hookup <laughs> things yeah. um, and like drugs and whatever that was just like it was a it was alternative culture um, in in every sense and so they got the impression that hey we should probably spin this off as a new business because it's going to need its own protection mm-hmm. and legal separation from the publishing business with the way that like morality is evolving or devolving mm-hmm. uh, in American politics. And so they, they spun it off, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago um, and then got absolutely hammered by people as being um, handmaidens to sex trafficking, which right. is not true, but go on. And, no. and I imagine there are plenty of people listening who hear this and hear, oh, a website where prostitutes are able to advertise their wares, find Johns, and just do this mm-hmm. out in the open. That sounds like a bad thing. If who it's are those not, people? Well, there's some people. <laughs> if, it's not obvious to you, if it's not obvious <laughs> to you, it's worth noting that for a number of sex workers, like actually having in, in a publication <laughs> like this made their lives safer they yeah. didn't necessarily need john um they didn't need pimps. Pimps. yeah they didn't need pimps in the same way they were able to vet the johns before they met them meeting a stranger on the street who wants to pay you to have sexual a sexual encounter can be very very dangerous this created some safety for them he knows a lot about this and, doesn't he weird well not that's because a lot about this i'm a libertarian who cares about these yeah. issues okay. well i and i, I, mean, I say my only thing people. about it is, is it creates lifelong friends i mean it's where <laughs> i met andrew sullivan and he's like you're a writer i'm like yeah what are you what are you doing but yeah but i'll get to the yeah. point here the point is the point is and there, there are lots of things that i could say about kamala i could talk about you know the death penalty case where there was certain information that could have exonerated a, um, a potential person who was on death row, but she made it difficult for this information to come out. I could talk about 
you know, the DA's office that she runs drafting uh, a letter or at least a defense suggesting that they should keep people incarcerated because, hey, they are really cheap labor and the state kind of needs it. I could talk about those things. Those are real things that happen. But with Backpage, the fact that she acknowledges that this is not a case that she can make, going after these people who are exercising freedom of speech by publishing this shit online is not something she could make stick. She acknowledges it, and then she prosecutes them anyways for purposes of political expediency. Perp walks them, has this unbelievable parade where they're photographed in jumpsuits with handcuffs. And then the case has to be dropped once she's won re-election. It is utterly despicable. It is a flagrant abuse of power. And if any, I know this is old hat now. If the Trump administration had done this, people would be appropriately incensed. She does it. I'm incensed. I don't know if most Americans are. And now, as Hayek says, the worst get on top. Here she is. Mm-hmm. Candidate for the vice presidency of the United States, perhaps on a glide path to a 10 year reign as Queen Kamala. Let me doubt. Let me doubt that back. Yeah. I think that this is disappointing. <laughs> and there are very serious he questions went, that ought to he be. He went asked. to White Scent. He did. There yeah, are he did. serious questions that he ought went, to be. He asked. White, White Scent on us. I'm just very saying, strange. sometimes when you have a romantic relationship with a powerful politician, <laughs> oh, no. it's not despicable to say, hey, if there were any favors there, if there was any unique opportunities granted to you, maybe we should be allowed to talk about that. You're talking about Willie Brown? I'm just saying. <laughs> maybe we should be allowed to ask questions about this. And that relationship, a- Andrew, Andrew, by the way, is, in, that is, is in Provincetown, super high. Like, what? Is they talking about I'm Willie Brown saying. out there? <laughs> what the hell happened? I'm just saying. There's a lot of I questions I just want to point out, this here. is, the, this is the, uh, the moment of Camille Foster, Elizabeth Nolan Brown convergence. It happened, finally. We, uh, have, here. we have many convergences. I know. but well, the, 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 I guess the one thing that I'm wondering is that if you look on Twitter, is not a good gauge of anything, but there's a lot of people on the left and the Bernie Sanders kind of left who are obviously very upset about this ticket. They were very upset about Joe Biden. Um, and now they're super upset that Joe Biden is not, you know, balancing out this ticket with somebody who is from the justice Democrats or somebody in the kind of more lefty Bernie style of Democrats. I see a lot of people out there. I was, I was pointing out to Camille, his uh, his new buddy, uh, Van Jones. Uh, he's not his new buddy, but, you know, clubhouse well, should be a bit of friends. Friendly. Um, friendly. We're going to get him. Uh, that he get him on he was getting uh, canceled now for saying nice things about uh, Kamala Harris. And it was only it was exclusively from people on the kind of Bernie end of this. Does that matter? Does I mean, because it's obviously there people are not going to vote for Trump. Are they going to stay home? Are they going to, I mean, because they're just foaming at the mouth now. Does it matter that the Bernie people who thought that this was their year, it was, this was the time the Democratic Party turns away from the old and away from the prosecutors <laughs> and away from, away from the Clinton types. Uh, and that didn't happen. When's the last time a, a vice presidential pick mattered? It does now. This one does. Does it? I want you to meet President Kamala Harris. <laughs> I mean, good point. Yeah. I mean, she's going to be with us for, you know, 10 to 12 years. No, yeah. we got to We got to punch out of here soon. Yeah. Um, but, Not but, and, but Andrew, uh, I mean, what, what do you make of this? Is this the most consequential vice presidential pick of your lifetime? Or is it just, look, it's Trump versus whoever 
And it doesn't really matter from the standpoint of most Democrats and many Americans who have just had it up to beyond the height of my head. I'm not even going to do the gesture, but you get it. See, it's audio. I know. I understand my audience. What, what do you what do you make of this? I, I, I'm really impressed by your passion about her. And I'm, <laughs> I'm really happy for you. And, you know, I, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to read up on <laughs> this is, by the way, what, this, is what, this is what Patty Hearst sounded like when she was talking to the Symbionese Liberation yeah. Army. Yeah. I will read up on your manifesto. <laughs> Look, I, I, listen, I, will, I think a lot I, of people are going to hold their nose and yes. they are going to cast the ballot okay, for Sleepy Joe and for Kamala. And I, and I get it. I understand why someone that's would really do where, that. That's where I am. Yeah. Uh, I... Uh, She'll do. <laughs> and, and in some ways, I don't, I just, that's fine right now. Don't yeah. tell me anymore. I, I, I'm going to have to vote. I have to vote. So I, it's not as, I would have been, I would have been, I would have been less, I would have been, I would have been less, uh, uh, happy with Warren. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I think. And cause he's just uh, awful. And, uh, yeah, and I would have been less happy with Stacey Abrams or with so yeah. it's not the worst. I think I probably would too. And I kind yeah. of think it's a pretty conventional pick in many ways. Uh, and but I, my general feeling about her is I don't trust her an inch, <laughs> and I don't particularly like her. And I thought she was terrible in the primaries. But you know, I'll do as you'll do. Yeah, I, we just got to get through this. What was it? Six percent of people in her home state voted for her in the primary. Something like that. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, in California, she got six percent of the vote. I think. Wow. I, it's from memory. I don't know if that. I think it was around there. Yeah. I mean, she dropped out before Iowa, right? She didn't even. Yeah, she was out before Iowa. But there was a moment there where it looked. It was looking well because she had her. a had a canned line. Yeah. That, I was that little girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You have that. You have that tattooed in your bicep. Yeah, I was you? also that little girl. Is actually what my <laughs> bicep says. Yeah. That's even <laughs> the name of my memoir. I was that little girl. The Michael Moynihan story. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well All Andrew right. we've, we've held you hostage for a while here um, it is, great. it's always great. such a pleasure to be able to break bread with you and I'm, I'm delighted we could make this work and thank you for gracing us um, all, again uh, during our 200th episode today I got a text with you I was at lunch with a dear friend um, uh, I'll mention his name later I don't want to get him in trouble and I said to myself you know one of the most extraordinary things is I get a text from Andrew Sullivan and he's like, Hey, are we like on for tonight? I'm like, Fuck. I had to do a thing with Andrew Sullivan. Not only that, I get to do it with Matt Welch and Michael Moynihan. Yeah. It is fucking remarkable. It is remarkable that I get to do that. I'm almost certainly not almost certainly. I am definitively the least qualified person to offer perspectives on most of the things that we talk about, but I don't give a fuck. They treat me like especially an equal race most of the time. Um, and it is, it's just an extraordinary privilege. And I hope we get to do another 200. Absolutely. Yeah. And when this is over, I will tongue kiss you and that, that, I'll give that, you the canker sore that I have Fantastic. You. because you and deserve then it. I will Herpes. give it to Andrew when I go to Robinstown. <laughs> I'm Will coming you? to see you, Andrew. You're coming, you're coming to the pool. I'm coming to the pool. <laughs> Amen. We're you know, all going to the we're pool. All go- yeah, yeah. It's we're all going adventures. to the pool, if you know what I mean. No friction. No. No friction. None. No. Zero. Andrew Sullivan makes the case for gay, and yeah. I'm intrigued. I'm so intrigued. <laughs> so intrigued. I'm intrigued. 
He's like, you know what he said? He said, basically what he said, I'm going to break it down for you on the 200th episode. I'm going to leave it on this. He said that, you know, when you're like a, a straight guy and there's like a woman and they put up all this resistance, all this stuff, he's like, guys don't do that. They're all just guys. Like, you know, the guy that's attra- going after the girl, there's just two of those. I don't know how that never and dawned on me. It's amazing. It's remarkable. All I mean- the things that are horrible about being straight, they don't have. It's crazy. They don't have it. And you... You don't call them back, and they're happy. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing about the 200th episode is at the last moment, Andrew Sullivan made all three of the co-hosts gay. <laughs> We're Hi. in. We're in. Bye. 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 We know of new methods of attack. Trojan Hawk.